Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines, for over 20 years, online at thepulp.net. In this Pulp Event Podcast, Lori Powers discusses Love Story Magazine and the Romance Pulp Phenomenon. Lori received the annual Muncie Award at Pulp Fest 2016. She is the granddaughter of pulp writer Paul S. Powers and is currently working on a biography of editor Daisy Bacon. This was the first of two presentations on A Century of Specialty Pulps. The talk was recorded on July 22, 2016, at Pulp Fest 2016, in Columbus, Ohio. Again, thank you so much for coming t uh, tonight. I really appreciate it. And before I get into my presentation too much, I wanted to um, put this slide up to thank um, so many of you in the room that have helped me over the years with this project uh, by giving me information that I'm, that's part of this presentation, by your support, by asking questions, by your patience, because I know it's taken a really long time to write this book, and um, I just wanted you all to know that I really, really appreciate it, and I feel like you're all part of this project. For better or worse, you're, you're all part of it. So, um, I like to call the romance pulp the quiet giant. And um, it's the giant because, uh, as a lot of you know, it was one of the most popular genres, along with the Western, mm -hmm. the most popular genre of the pulp magazines during the 1930s and 40s. Um, I'm not going to reel off a bunch of statistics, uh, boring statistics, because a lot of you know them already. But a couple that really stick out is, like, between 1912 and 1971, there were 139 different romance pulp titles issued. And pretty much between 1928 and 1945, that's when the vast majority of those were launched. So that's a lot of different magazines. And also during the 1940s, actually, there were an average of 20 different titles showing up on the newsstands every single year during that decade. That's, that's a lot of different uh, titles. And Love Story, the uh, magazine that I'm writing about, holds the record for the biggest selling or the, the most circulation of any pulp magazine, whatever genre, um, of uh, during the early 1930s, its circulation was around 600,000 a week. So, and I also, I like to call it quiet. It's quiet because hardly anybody has been writing about the romance pulps, um, either in academics or in, the, in popular culture as we know. Um, when I first started to research uh, the romance pulps, I started to look at some um, a history of the romance novels, thinking, okay, well, they know, they, they must be, they must know about the romance pulps. And not one of these books mentioned the romance pulps. It wasn't until I saw Michelle Nolan's book, Love on the Racks, which is basically about the com love com romance comics, but she talks about love story in there. That was the first book that even mentioned it. There's another book, it's called Reading the Romance, and it came out in the early 1980s. And uh, 
it's considered one of the foundation, it's like the, the, it started the whole study of romance novels. And I started to read that book and I thought she's gotta, she's gotta be talking about romance pulps in here somewhere. And she got to the point where she started talking about pulps and I was getting all excited. And then she, the only two titles that she mentioned were Detective Story and Black Mask. <laughs> so at that point I just kind of gave up. So that's why I call it The Quiet Giant. Now, um, Anne Love's story, like I said, was um, far and above the leader of all of the pulps during the, uh, all the romance uh, pulps during the entire time it was um, on the market. This quote is from 1941 from Writer's Yearbook. And I'm sure that the writer's exaggerating a little bit, but he's trying to get a point across that no one doubts that Love Story has several times cleared a half a million dollars net profit a year as a business for its investment it rivals U.S. Steel, AT&T, or General Motors. And this was 20 years after the magazine had been launched. So even after 20 years, it, it uh, packed a lot of power. And um, if you're wondering, I looked it up, and half a million dollars in 1941 equals to about 8.3 million in today's money. So um, in the beginning, Street and Smith had tried um, several times in the first two decades of the 20th century. They had tried several times to launch magazines that would uh, attract a large female audience. Um, Orman Smith had said at one point that he wanted to attract, to attract the same kind of reader, what he called, with the mass circulation mind that used to buy his weeklies, you know, all the, all the uh, young women that used to buy his weeklies back in the 19th century. These are just two examples of what they tried. Women, uh, Smith's, Smith's was launched in, I think, 1905, and um, it just kind of limped along through the 1910s. And then Women's Story was launched in 1913, and um, it was sold to another publisher after two years. So um, neither one of them did very well. So, but there were a couple of things that happened in the late 1910s that I think kind of changed their mind. And I don't have any proof of this, but this is what I've been thinking. Uh, for one thing, women got the vote. They became a much more powerful force in the market. They had always been there, but they m were much more powerful after they got the vote. And also in 1919, McFadden came out with True Story which is a confession magazine, yes, but still, it, it was a phenomenal seller from the very beginning. I think, I think like by the early 1920s, it was selling two million copies a month. So I don't think that the people at Street and Smith could ignore that. So they felt that, okay, the time is right, we're gonna do this. So in early 1920, uh, around in 1920, they went to Amita Fairgrieve, who at that point was the associate editor of People's Favorite Magazine. And Amita had been, uh, Amita studied, uh, graduated from Smith College in 1912, and as far as I know, she started with People's about 1918, 1919. And um, at, in the Smith's Alumni Quarterly, 
uh, when she announced that she had become the associate editor, she called People's the greatest undiscovered periodical in America. So um, she was a very enthusiastic person, very charming, very bright. Well, you can't tell that from her picture. Um, but um, she, the writing on the picture, the, I got this from her yearbook, and she got married, and who, whoever wrote on that yearbook wrote the married name above every person's name, above every person's picture. That She ended up getting married, actually, in 1922, and, uh, but she kept Fairgrief as her business name. So they gave Amita the, the assignment of being the editor for a new magazine they were, being they were launching. And um, legend has it that, and this has been told a million times, that Amita went into an office at Street and Smith and with a bunch of dime novels and read all these dime novels for six months and then came out after six months with the idea for a love story. And if, if you really think about it, it doesn't make sense to me because I would think that with somebody, especially with Henry Ralston around, who was, you know, in charge of launching a lot of the magazines there, and he was uh, a genius pretty much when it came to ideas. I think it wouldn't have taken him six months to figure this out. And I think what happened was they decided to launch the magazine, and they told Amita that she was going to be the editor and that she better get up to speed on romance stories because she didn't have a lot of experience in that. So that's what she did. She went into an office and read dime novels for six months. And when she came out, she, uh, the first issue of Love Story, yeah, see that's where the font is kind of funky, Chuck. So the first issue of Love Story, um, came out in May of 1921. And on the right is the uh, table of contents, and you'll see up at the top it says published quarterly, but it was never quarterly. It went right into being a monthly. And it was a monthly for a couple of months, then it went to a semi-monthly, and then it went to a monthly. And um, the stories, just like what Amita was reading, were of the dime novel variety. They were um, very Victorian stories, very chaste. There was nothing, it's nothing like true story, that's for sure. So, and also, um, after a couple of issues, I think that the management decided that they needed to um, make a point in the magazine about what kind of magazine this was going to be. And they put this statement in, Love Story is not just another of those sex problem magazines which have done incalculable harm. Love Story is clean at heart and, it is, and its stories are written around the love of the one man for the one woman. And I think this was its philosophy for most of the time it was on the market. And I think that's why it stayed so successful, actually. Um, so. In 1922, Fairgrieve left. Wait, I got another slide in here. Did I miss one? Wait. Sorry, guys. In 1922, Fairgrieve left, and a new editor came along. Her name was Ruth Agnes Abling, and she was from uh, the Midwest, from Indiana, 
and she um, had been a newspaper editor and she wrote a few stories that appeared in newspapers in the Midwest, um, a few articles, how-to articles. How she got from Indiana to New York City to edit Love Story, I don't know. But she did it, and she started in 1922. And um, during, her, during her time there, I mean, the magazine kept growing in circulation. It kept just getting larger and larger. The estimates from the first uh, couple of years was that its starting circulation was 100,000, 200,000. Nobody really knows. But one of the things I think what made it so successful, especially in the 1920s, was the fact that there wasn't a whole lot of competition. Um, these were the main titles that were its main competition. There were a lot of other um, titles out there, but they just kind of floated in and out. These were the uh, ones that stuck around and were of any competition to Love Story, these were it. Uh, ranch Romances started in 1924, and even though it was a Western romance, I still think that it was kind of in the same market. So while um, Abilene was the editor, she um, pretty much kept things the same way as Fairgrieve had kept them. She kept the very um, old-fashioned stories, the Victorian stories. Um, the heroines were usually very poor. Uh, they were a lot of times orphans. Um, they were very, very good girls. They were very saintly. A lot of times they were like governesses or they were living with the wicked cousin that was very rich, you know, that kind of thing. And these covers, I think, are really good examples of the stories that were inside. Um, you have the one on the left with the woman tapping on the window. They had a lot of covers with women tapping on the window. And then on the right, they, the, my favorite pose, you know, the hand on the face in horror. You know, oh dear me, what's going on? So um, this was pretty much it for the next several years. Um, and then uh, in 1926, Daisy Sarah Bacon showed up at the door on March 13th, and she noted in her diary many, many years later that she had wore a, um, she wore a seal skin coat her first day at work. So she was already a fashionista. Um, she worked as, before she came to Street and Smith, she had worked as a model, as a photography model, and a bookkeeper, and I'll go over that in a minute. Um, Daisy was born on May 23rd, 1898, in Union City, Pennsylvania. Um, one of the things, as I read through a lot of her uh, newspaper articles that had been about her in the 1930s and 40s, there were several things that showed up that were incorrect, and one was her age. A lot of times her age was wrong, and, um, and she actually herself lied about her age a little bit too. Even her passport was wrong. So, um, and she, of course, she was always younger, you know, so. Um, but I think that was pretty standard for a lot of women lied about their age. It was just kind of the thing you did. Um, Daisy's parents were Elmer Bacon and Jesse Holbrook. Elmer was a descendant of Sir Francis Bacon's cousin. And um, that was another thing the newspapers got wrong a lot. They said she was a direct descendant of Sir Francis Bacon, and that wasn't quite right. Um, Jesse was a descendant of William Bradford, who was the governor of Plymouth County. 
several times, Plymouth Colony, excuse me. Elmer was a shopkeeper. He was a merchant in Union City, but he had ties up in Chautauqua County, which is where Jesse was from, Westfield, Westfield, which is uh, New York, just south of Buffalo. And um, they married a few years before Daisy was born. Um, Daisy was born in 1898, and the first year and a half of her life were wonderful, uh, beautiful. Her mother would keep these little notes about every day what Daisy did as a baby. And then Elmer passed away. He died on January 1st, 1900. He died of Bright's disease, which I believe is tied into tuberculosis. So after that, Jessie moved Daisy as far as I know, she moved Daisy up to Westfield. And she, that, at that point, Daisy started living with her grandparents. And they were a big influence on her. Um, her grandmother taught her to read and taught her, uh, got her interested in reading novels and that kind of thing. Um, and then a few years after that, um, Jesse met George Ford. And George was a minister. Um, a minister who liked to jump around a lot. He jumped around from church to church. And um, he had kind of an interesting history. And thanks to David Saunders, he's the one that brought this to my attention. He, had, he was a very colorful, colorful person. I guess in some areas you would call him a charlatan. But he was, at one point before he met Jesse, um, he, uh, at one night he was caught in his church the church was, um, nobody else was in the church except for a girl that was underage. And he was ran out of town the next day. Um, but eventually now he did come back to that same church. They accepted him back in. So, you know, things may have you know, gotten blown out of proportion. But anyway, um, Jesse married uh, Reverend Ford in 1905. And in 1906, Esther Joe Ford was born and she was Daisy's half-sister. Shortly after that, uh, Reverend Ford died, George Ford died. So before Daisy was even 10 years old, she, her mother had been widowed twice. Uh, they had been moved around a lot. Her mother started to have financial problems, uh, you know, just a lot of upheaval in her life. But Esther, her half-sister, would end up being her best sister best friend for the rest of her life, her support, her associate, Esther was like her rock. So something good came of all about all that drama. So um, another little urban myth that goes around is that Daisy never went to school. You'll see that in some articles. It's not true. Um, her grandmother did teach her at home how to read, but Daisy did go to um, the schools in Westfield, and she is in the top row there, the um, sixth from the left. Not only did she go to school, but she was a valedictorian. So uh, she graduated in 1917. Um, shortly after that, though, when she was when she was graduating, she got a very small scholarship to Barnard College. But she never made it. Her mother had started to have major financial problems, and she never made it to college. Um, she, uh, in about a year after Daisy graduated, 
Daisy, her mother, and Esther all um, packed up and moved to New York City. And I really couldn't figure out why or what was the reasoning behind that. Or The only thing I knew is that Daisy did want to become a writer. And then um, nothing really shows up in the record books until about 1924 when these two articles came out in the Saturday Evening Post. And they were written under, uh, they were anonymous bylines, but they have been credited to Daisy. And uh, the first article was published in June 1924. It's called On the 14th Floor, and it's a first person. Basically, she's ghostwriting for her mother, Jessie, because when they got to New York City, Jessie got a job as a chambermaid in the hotels in New York City. And so this is, there's just, uh, Daisy wrote this account of Jessie's life as a chambermaid. Um, the second article was published um, two months later, and it's about Daisy's job. Uh, she w at that point, she was a bookkeeper for an auctioneer whose main source of business was auctioning off luggage that had been left unclaimed in hotels. So she got a six-page article out of that. I mean, she really could get into the details and talk about, I mean, just fascinating pieces, really. And so she didn't make a lot of money on these, and she, unfortunately, she never got published again in Saturday Evening Post. But this was her ticket to get into Street and Smith, pretty sure. Um, but like I said, she ran out of money. Um, she needed to get a steady job. And so in 1926, I'm pretty sure this was the ad, she saw this ad in the Sunday Times, and it was for a young lady, well-educated, is needed in a publisher's office, uh, desirable, desirable environment and personnel. You need to state your age, experience, and your salary that you wanted. So she answered that, and as far as I know, that was the ad for Love Story magazine. So when she started at the magazine, her first job was to be responsible for the friend in need column, and that was the advice column in the magazine. Um, during the next two years, she worked on that column. She also wrote four stories for Love Story, and she also got to got a feel for how to run the magazine. She, you know, she went around and she asked questions, and she just kept an eye open for for um, things to learn. So she was she was definitely ambitious. And then in March of 1928, she became editor. And it sounds like, and you'll hear this in a little clip I have later, it sounds like the management asked Ruth Abeling to leave. And they put Daisy in charge. And um, she began to slowly make changes to the magazine. She changed, she made the heroines more up to date, more modern. She made them more independent. And so Daisy also started to work with uh, writers you know, to groom them to write these kinds of stories. In 1929, um, Daisy hired <coughs> Esther to be her associate editor. And Esther worked for Daisy for the next four, 20 years. And um, from the day that they started working for the rest of their lives, they called each other Bacon and Ford. And that's uh, in their professional lives, in their personal lives, even in their journals, they called each other Bacon and Ford. So, uh, 
another thing happened in 1920. All Story magazine was launched, All Story Love Stories. And there's Amita again, Amita Fairgrieve was the, named the editor of All Story. And from then on, she and Daisy had a great rivalry. And they, um, you know, they competed for a lot of things. Um, they each got a lot of press, but I think Amita resented it because Daisy got a lot more press than she did. And in fact, one time, Daisy asked Jane, is it Jane Little, Jane Littell, who is another editor, she asked her, why did Fairgrieve hate her so much? And Jane said, well, it's because you're in her air and she can't get you out. So it's like Daisy had this presence over the entire industry. She was, you know, she was Daisy. So, uh-oh. There's an article missing. There it is. Okay, 1931, Daisy, this is one of the first pieces that showed up in a national newspaper about Daisy. And at first I, I couldn't even recognize her at first. I said, is that really her? And then I realized later, because I have the original photo, they had kind of trimmed her nose for this picture. They took the bump out of her nose. Um, but this is one of the first articles that she was interviewed for. and. She immediately started to use these interviews as a launching pad to talk about how women in that period were becoming more independent. They didn't need men to support them anymore. They could make their own choices. They could become stronger in relationships. So um, she really was a spokesperson for young women in, during that time. Um, and Amita also got a lot of press. And I'm sorry, those are kind of lighter the copies are a little bit lighter than what they're supposed to be, but it doesn't, it's okay. But Amita, this is an article that Amita, uh, about Amita that came out a couple of years later. And sure, her philosophy was a little bit different about her magazine. She, she um, in this article, she wanted to talk about what women were attracted to physically in men. And this is one of my favorite quotes. She says, the caveman is the most popular hero. Next to the caveman is the maligned hero. When, you have, when a story has a maligned caveman as a hero, the whole idea is splendid. So, by 1931, Love Story was like on a steamroller. That's when it hit a really, its highest circulation. It was running about 600,000 a week. Um, I think that there are several reasons why it became so much more popular than the other magazines. One is the quality of the stories. Um, Daisy always made a point of training her writers that the story comes first, the love comes second. And that was her mantra throughout her entire career. Um, the magazine, like I said before, had a reputation as being more old-fashioned. Uh, There's always just basically a plain kiss at the end. It was safe, and I think a lot of people, when they picked up a love story, they knew what they were going to get. So I think that was really important for people, and that's why I kept selling. Also, um, the friend in need column that Daisy was working on there for a while, it was incredibly popular. During this period, and for many, many years, it was running like 20 pages in each issue, and the office was getting about 10,000 letters a month. 
and over and over and over again, you'd have people write in, you'd have people in their letters when they wrote to the column saying, this is the only reason I buy the magazine. So it was really um, a, a, big, a big part of the magazine. And I think this is another reason why the magazine did so well is because of Modest Stein, who wrote, or excuse me, who did almost every single cover for a love story from like 1922 until the late 1930s. I mean, it's an incredible run. And the quality that he did for um, Love Story, it was just so consistent. It's like every single week, every single uh, uh, piece was so well done. And I think he also created a, like an image or like a brand for the magazine. It's like the women were always wholesome. They were always, um, you know, there was nothing really cheap or, or salacious about the covers, even suggestive. I mean, not very often at all did you find a cover that was suggestive at all. And when you compare it to um, some of the other magazines that came out during that time, these are some of the others that came out during the early 1930s. And none of these lasted longer than a couple of years at the most. Oh, your battery just died in your phone. I need the battery to read in a minute. Um, but as you can see, the quality between those covers and these, I mean, which one would you pick up? So um, an th interesting thing I noted was that the only romance magazines that lasted through the early years of the Depression were the ones that were launched before uh, the Wall Street crash. Those were the only ones that made it through. Love Story, All Story, uh, Cupids, which became Sweetheart Stories, uh, Ranch Romances, and a few others. Everything else just never made it. So here's some of the early uh, 1930s women editors, and this is only a, this is a very incomplete list. I'm still working on a list of some of the other women, but as you can see, it was um, you know it was a very small world. A lot of the women jumped between magazine to magazine, a lot like the other um, the other pulp magazines did. And um, Daisy complained in some of her notes later on that she felt that none of the other editors liked her. They always complained about her. They started rumors about her. They even, you know, they would say things like, oh, she's never busy. You know, she doesn't work very hard. And she's, Daisy said at one point, she said, when a pin drops in my office, everybody else knows about it. And they talk about it. But I don't know if that's true or not. You know, that was Daisy's perception. And she could be on the negative side. So, you know, you have to take it with a grain of salt. These are some of the other magazines that Daisy edited during the early 1930s, up until 1937. It, in 1930, she was given real love in the back. Originally, it was live girl stories. They changed it to real love and gave it to Daisy. It was more of their version of a confession magazine. Uh, it only lasted till 1932. Then she was uh, in charge of the relaunch of Ainsley's when it came out in 34. Ainsley's ended up becoming smart love stories, and I think it went away in 36. And then she uh, was also in charge of Pocket Love, which I think only came out with a couple of issues, and then it went away as well. 
And then in 1936, basically the honeymoon was over for, um, in a way, for her job at Street and Smith. Basically the, the real hard work started to happen and she started to get really unhappy. Um, for one thing, in 1936, competition, a lot more romance pulps hit the, hit the newsstands. In 1935, there were only like seven. No, by 1936, there were 15. And then naturally, then love story circulation started to go down a little bit, just you know, as a matter of course. Her, uh, her and Esther's mother died in 1936 also, so it's a tough year for her. Also, she started to have trouble at the office. She started to feel a lot of resentment towards how she was being treated at the office. And in October of that year, she wrote this article that came out in a magazine called The New York Woman and she wrote it under an anonymous byline, but I know it was her because the original manuscript is in her papers, and also in December of that year, Walter Winchell put it in his column that Daisy was the writer of the story. So I think the, uh, the magazine, or excuse me, the article um, generated a lot of talk. And in that article, she talks in general about her perceptions about how women are treated uh, when they are in um, successful business women. And um, I'm only going to read you one, one very small piece of it, if I can find it. Uh, but first of all, in the, in the very beginning she talks about the fact that she is one of maybe only a few thousand women in the country that were making over uh, 5,000 a year. And actually, at the point that she was writing this article, she says that she was making over 12000 a year, um, just so you have that for your notes. And then later in the article, she says, although I bring a great deal of money into the business, and although I control the way that money is made, I have absolutely nothing to say about spending this money. Over a period of years, I've had a great many ideas about promoting new business, but they have never been taken up. And not only that, but several of them have been accepted later when they were put forward by men. Two of the best plans I ever had, the details of which I cannot tell you without revealing the nature of our business, have been recently accepted and put into operation by men who are almost strangers to us and almost totally without business experience. So that gives you a little bit of idea about how she felt about things at that point at Street and Smith. But she, you know, she stayed there. And then in 1938, Alan Grammer came <laughs> to Street and Smith. And Alan Grammer was, um, before that, he's, he was with Curtis Publishing Company. And he was known as an efficiency expert. He had actually um, developed a couple of inventions that were patented for bookbinding. And uh, from what I heard, he made a lot of money on that. But um, he was very um, passionate about efficiency. So Street and Smith brought him in. He was the first non-relative to run that company. And he immediately got to work with cleaning things up. And so Daisy had a few problems with him, as you can imagine. He didn't go over very well with a lot of people. And um, 
a couple things that she wrote about him later in another magazine, just to give you an idea of what was going on there. In, um, in, in a roundup article she wrote back in the 1970s, she wrote, I feel like I'm camping. <laughs> she goes, now there had, to be, there had to be a conference every time the president learned from the controller that an author's check had been attached. Attaching checks had always been a common occurrence in publishing houses, but our new management had to treat it as a catastrophe. I was informed that half of the offenders were contributors to my magazines, although just by the law of averages, this was bound to be the case inasmuch as Love Story was not only published weekly, but carried an extra signature of 16 pages, which none of our other magazines did. Um, his nibs, that's what she called him, his nibs, was always asking me why I couldn't buy stories from writers who didn't allow themselves to get into financial difficulties. Then later she writes, but if I had trouble over writers, trouble wasn't the word for it when it came to illustrators. One of our most popular was a periodic drinker who at times had to enter a private sanitarium. But even there she managed to work and we took care of getting her assignments to her and delivering her completed illustrations to the art department. She had a little girl, but the woman who looked after the child was not too good about money manners, and we used to lend a hand there too. Somehow the situation came to the attention of the new chief executive, and over and over I was asked, can't you manage to find illustrators who don't drink? So um, that was just two examples. And then the coup de grace, and this is why I have these pictures here, is that he ended up getting rid of the roll top desks in the office. And that was like the, the final blow for a lot of people. Daisy's famous roll top desk was replaced with the tiny little desk that she has on the right hand side. So as you can see, morale was not very high at the company after a while. Um, and as the 1940s began, she and Esther were given uh, more assignments. They were given Romantic Range in 1940. They were given Detective Story in 1941. And then as 1940 went on, she became, she, uh, she became very, very busy. She went out and did a lot of interviews. There were a lot of different romance titles out at that point. There were 22 different romance titles from what I can see and seven Western romance. So there were 29 total. That's a lot of competition. And uh, Chuck, this is when I'm gonna need that interview started up. But um, she started to do a lot of interviews for the newspapers. There were three different interviews in seven different magazines. She did a couple of interviews for the writers, uh, or excuse me, nine different newspapers. She did a couple of in different interviews for um, the writers' magazines. And then she also did a radio interview with um, a, a radio program that's called The Writer and Your Life. And I've got a little snippet to, um, to um, play for you. And actually in it, she is doing an interview with a man named Clark Robertson. He is the other person being interviewed. He was writing stories at that point for Love Story. And he was also Esther's fiance but we won't hear from him, unfortunately. We don't have time. But um, I want to have you listen to the first five minutes of this interview because it's really 
it's really nice to hear her voice and to hear how she talks about how she started a love story. The Writer and Your Life. Station WNYC presents the seventh in a series of programs aimed at a better understanding between you and the writer. These programs are written and directed by George Asness, who also acts as your master of ceremonies. Mr. Asness. Good evening. Some time ago, I asked Daisy Bacon and Clark Robinson to appear jointly on my program. When Mr. Robinson agreed to appear, I was happy. But when Daisy Bacon accepted, I positively gloated. Here at last was my opportunity for a classic revenge. Here was a chance to edit an editor. I could just visualize myself getting hold of the sheets on which was written what she expected to say and gleefully slashing away with a blue pencil. But somehow it didn't quite work out that way. I've been acquainted with Daisy Bacon for some years. I've even sold her stories. But I don't know any more about her now than I did when I first met her. So far, she has refused to talk about herself, and it's only my faith in the magnetic powers of the microphone that makes me hope we may get her to do so tonight. Daisy, what about it? Just why have you been so reluctant to talk about yourself or your work? As for the first, I think a person's private life should be private. About the second, you can find your answer in almost any magazine. You will find prominently displayed the names of the stories and articles, the names of the authors who wrote them. But the editor remains in the background, which is where I think she should be. But you're a writer too, aren't you? At least I heard that you started as one. Yes, I did, but I'm not one now. They say that editors and critics are disappointed writers. How true would you say that is? I can only speak for myself, and frankly, I don't know just how that, how well that would apply to me. I was rather fortunate when I first started writing. You see, I sold my first story. To what magazine? To the Saturday Evening Post. Oh, then you did manage to make a living at it from the very beginning. Not at all. That is why I took a job on Love Story magazine. How in the world did you, an unknown writer, ever get such a job? I got it through an ad in the New York Times. Good Lord, I never heard of anyone actually getting a job through a want ad. Do you mean to say that you just walked in there and became editor of the magazine? No. I started doing the Lovelorn column. Well, how did you get to the editor? Uh, sometime later, the publishers decided to make a change. I was doing the makeup and part of the reading anyway, and the publishers just let me go on with the rest. And did you go on writing at the same time? No. I had too much to do editing other people's stories. Also, it's a full-time job giving the readers of a weekly the stories they want. You mean the love stories they want? No, I mean stories. You can't just split up your life and say, this is my love life, this is my business life, this is my social life, and so on. They are all bound up together and depend on each other. Well, just what is a love story? You might just as well ask me, what is a story? I don't know, and I don't think anyone else does. I remember we once had a little girl in our manuscript department who looked through the stories which were simply addressed to Street and Smith, and when she found the word love anywhere, she'd mark that manuscript for love story. But a few words of love and a romantic setting do not make a love story. One of the most romantic stories we ever published was about auctioning off the tobacco crop in Kentucky. I can see from that that a romantic setting is by no means compulsory. You are quite right. Love and romance do not depend on geography. 
But whatever setting a writer chooses for his story, we do demand that he know his background. Sometimes the whole value of a story may be lost because the writer was unfamiliar with the location. Well, are there any preferred plots for love stories? Are there any preferred plots for a woman's life? Having men pay attention to you, getting married, having a family like your husband, getting used to your in-laws, all these things are important to a woman and therefore a good basis for story. It's so funny because at that point they had to turn the record over. So he says, oh, I've got to check my notes and then check the rec turn the record over while he's doing that. So it's pretty interesting, pretty interesting stuff. I feel very, I'm very grateful that these, what happened was that there was actual albums that were in her personal records, or personal papers, and uh, there's three of them, and um, it said on there that they were a radio interview from 1941, and so I was able to find a record player that had transferred files over to digital. She just, and it wasn't that expensive, it was like a hundred bucks. And I got it, you had to play the records at 78 RPM, stick a flash drive in, and it recorded them. So now they're, now we have them forever. So anyway, as the 1940s went on, um, the competition for, in romance pulps, really increased quite a bit. It was, like I said before, an average of 20 titles every single year were out there. Love Story ended up um, declining in circulation. It, uh, in 1943, it went from a monthly back to a, uh, excuse me, from a weekly to a semi-monthly. And then in 1944, it went to a monthly and it went to a digest, digest size, like everything else did. This last issue was February 1947. Romantic Rain stopped in January 47. So after that, at that point, 1947, for a small period of time, she just had one magazine, which was Detective Story. And then the last years of Doc Savage and the Shadow were hers. 1948 is when she acquired the editorship of those two. And as most of you know the stories, there wasn't a lot of notice when they quit these magazines. They basically came in and told her it was over. On April 9th, 1949, uh, it was announced that Street and Smith was stopping all the pulps, and on that same day, Daisy was let go. She was fired. Esther was stayed on at the company for another ten, at least 10 years, working for Street and Smith and then at Janina Condon Ast. Uh, at the point that Daisy was let go at Street and Smith, she was uh, 52. And actually, I have a note that shows that she went and she interviewed at McFadden Publications after that. But either they didn't uh, take her on or she decided she didn't want to work. She retired at that point and um, she moved out of the city. She moved to Port Washington on Long Island and um, she started to write something that she had always wanted to do. She had actually written a novel in the early 1930s. While she's doing everything else, she written a novel, but it was never published. She had turned it in and tried to get it published, and it, it, they had turned it down. 
So she started writing again in the early 1950s, and she was actually writing two books at once. She was writing Love Story Writer, which uh, was her how-to, how to write love stories for the magazines, and that has a little bit of her uh, personal life sprinkled throughout, and it also has a lot of stories about working at the publisher also. And you guys will love this. She was also writing a novel based on her Street and Smith career. It was all going to be all about Street and Smith. It was going to be her tell-all. And that manuscript does not exist. She either burned it, she tore it up, something. It's gone. So Love Story Writer came out in 1954. And then, that wasn't the end of it though. She didn't finally get her vengeance back at Grammar. She ended up writing this article that showed up in the Roundup in 1975. It's called The Golden Age of the Iron Maiden. And she um, talks about the demise of Street and Smith. And she really feels that a lot of it was due to poor management. This was published in 1975. I'm pretty sure that she probably wrote it a few years before that. But even at that point, she was 77 years old, and she was still getting published. So, oh, the font went off on that one too. De Esther ended up moving in with Daisy after um, Clark Robertson died in the early 60s. Esther moved in with Daisy after that, and they lived together until Daisy died in 1986, when she was 88, and then Esther died in 1989. Um, before Daisy passed away, she um, set up a scholarship for high school students in her area for um, students that wanted to pursue a career in journalism. They, that scholarship is still going on today. She set it up before she died. I think it was, went into effect in the early 90s and it's still going on today. It's at least 250 students have benefited from that scholarship so far. So even though she was forgotten in a lot of ways by a lot of people, her legacy lives on now. So that is it. That is the end of my presentation. You've been listening to a Pulp Event Podcast. Brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the pulp magazines, for over 20 years. Please visit us online at thepulp.net. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps. The Pulp Event Podcast is copyright 2016.